Welcome to Tricycle Talks. I'm Alex Caring-Lobel, Associate Editor of Tricycle, The Buddhist Review. Our topic today is how Tibetan Buddhism first came to the United States. Contrary to most popular accounts, it was a group of Kalmyk Mongols, ethnic Mongols from Western Russia, that first brought Tibetan Buddhism here. One teacher in particular, the Kalmyk Lama Geshe Wangyal, did much to establish the tradition. Geshe Wangyal was the first Lama in the United States to take on American students, training eminent scholars like Bob Thurman and Jeffrey Hopkins. He also devised, with the CIA, the telecode that made it possible for the Dalai Lama to escape from Tibet in 1959. He then spearheaded a decades-long diplomatic battle to allow the Dalai Lama to visit the U.S., which he did for the first time in 1979. Joining me to talk about this is David Arubshiro and Joel McCleary. David is the author of From Russia with Love in the current issue of Tricycle. He grew up around Geshe Wangyal in the same Kalmyk community in New Jersey. Joel McCleary came to Geshe Wangyal in the 70s. He's a Washington-based international political consultant who served in the Carter administration and as treasurer of the Democratic National Committee, almost certainly the first Buddhist to hold either position. David, let's start with how you became Geshe Wangyal's first disciple in America. Our community of ethnic Mongolian immigrants had just settled in the town of Freewood Acres, New Jersey, in uh, the winter of 1951-52. That community eventually established a Tibetan Buddhist temple according to the faith that we followed. The news of that establishment of the temple eventually reached India where Geshe Wangil heard of it and came to America three years later through bureaucratic and other levels and came to the community. And I missed his introduction to the community at our small temple there, but he came to my first grade class just a week afterward, maybe a week later after his arrival. And we had a small gathering there with other Kalmyk students, and that's when I first met him, and I understood right away that this was not uh, an ordinary Kalmyk from my experience, and I was immediately taken with him. But the main thing, I think, there was because he spoke English to me. So right away, there was some kind of visceral connection, but also the fact that he could speak English, which was a pretty novel thing. Troll, you came to uh, LBMA to study with Geshe Wangyal in 1971. Uh, What brought you to study with Geshe Wangyal specifically? Well, I'd been at Harvard from 67 to 71, and... um, during that time period, I got very interested in Zen. Elsie uh, Mitchell then had the uh, Cambridge Zen Center, which was an amazing organization. And then uh, I met uh, through Josh Cutler, who's now with Geshe Wangyal's Center. I met Bob Thurman, and uh, Bob was an amazing character during that time period, uh, alive, dynamic. And I used to go to uh, classes of his over at uh, one of these centers, and uh, he was great. And then I took some courses with him at Harvard because he was a graduate student there. And then my roommate, Josh Cutler, went down to study with Geshe Wangyal. He was a class ahead of me. And then uh, I tried to go down a year uh, afterwards, but I was never really accepted. Uh, I got down there and uh, Geshe Wangyal uh, didn't want to talk Buddhism with me at all. He wanted to play chess and talk politics. So why everybody went to bed studying Tibetan things and being very uh, scholarly, 
I'd be kept up all night uh, in the most ferocious chess games with much swearing and cheating going on, I have to admit. Uh, and uh, we would then at late at night talk a lot about politics. And uh, he was insistent that given the era that we were in and given what he'd seen, uh, the Holocaust basically for the Kalmyk people, he'd seen uh, the Japanese invasion of China, uh, and he had seen uh, the Chinese invasion of Tibet. Having witnessed all these things, he felt that now was not the time to go to monasteries. You know, Geshe Lal was uh, the most liberated person I ever met. I don't think it would have mattered if he'd been a Buddhist or a shaman or a Catholic or a, a Taoist or an atheist. He was just an amazingly dynamic, liberated human being. He once said to me, I've never been anybody's slave. And he wasn't. He wasn't anybody's slave intellectually or physically. He was a shaman. He was a power. And uh, he convinced me that really, given this time and this age, that I really need to get my ass down to Washington and get involved in politics, and that that was religious practice. And he had done the same, no? Over a decade earlier, he had worked for the CIA, though he, for obvious reasons, was very private about his work. Um, well, he, he had been politicized. He grew up as a Kalmyk Mongolian, and the Kalmyks were under Russian occupation, we could say. And, of course, Stalin turned on them, first somewhat in the 30s and then after the war, and basically wiped them out and uh, sent them out of their country. So he'd witnessed that. And his teacher, Dorjiev, who was perhaps the reason the English invaded Tibet uh, with a young husband, was his teacher. And he was an extremely political, religious scholar, uh, been very close to the Tsar, then was close to Lenin, uh, not close to Stalin, and was purged in the 30s with many people. So, so Geshe Law, there was no differentiation between politics and religion. And, and I think Geshe Law felt that people who thought there was a division between the two, as we, when he first came to this country, uh, he had quite right-wing, but I mean right-wing, anti-communist, not he was a libertarian in many ways, but I think he was sort of taken back by a lot of the politicization that went around Vietnam and didn't totally understand it at first. Uh, but he didn't see any difference between politics and, and religion. I think his work with the Central Intelligence Agency had to do mostly with developing a code. I think he believed that trying to counter the occupation of, of Tibet was important, and he was absolutely instrumental in getting the Dalai Lama out of uh, Tibet. If it hadn't been for him, I don't know, you know, he, he, there are many factors, but he was, he was one factor in getting His Holiness out of Tibet. Joel, what was the atmosphere at LBMA when you arrived in 71? Well, I, I arrived a, uh, a macrobiotic bearded uh, refugee from Cambridge. And uh, probably after I'd been there a few months, I was back to my uh, uh, same form of being uh, weight and uh, diet of being a tackle football player. Uh, we went quickly from brown rice to lamb fat, uh, you know, the main Mongolian diet, which uh, the only vegetable he ever saw was if you painted green on the side of a, a lamb, you know. <laughs> and um, he was convinced that vegetarians got too airy-fairy and uh, it was actually very bad for you. You, you weren't very grounded. So uh, after hundreds of pounds of lamb fat and buttered tea with salt, and I think three vegetables I fit in pretty well. And uh, it was an exciting environment. I mean, you know, it was very communal. We got up in the morning and, and there were prayers. Of course, no one had any idea what was being said because no one understood any Tibet. We were just learning Tibetan. 
And then when I was there, it was uh, a little more Chinese slave labor camp than it was uh, <laughs> a monastery. We were recruited to uh, help build maybe architecturally the most ugly building that's ever been built known to man. Was this LBMA? Yeah, we, we built a, a wing on. And this of course, is after it moved to Washington, New Jersey, yeah. not from Freewood Acres, so... And so, you know, Geisha Law was not at all uh, enslaved by uh, notions of Western aesthetics. So, you know, the idea of putting aluminum siding on, uh, outdoor aluminum siding on a ceiling inside was very beautiful. Or, uh, you know, uh, I mean, there's just no, he hadn't gone to architectural school. I mean, he obviously didn't understand material sciences as Westerners understood it. So I found it quite in this Chinese uh, labor camp that we were in. Uh, while we were building these structures was was uh, very entertaining and actually quite a good teaching because uh, if you look at it from a psychological point of view, it uh, you couldn't romanticize what you were doing. <laughs> and uh, you got very irritated and hot and nothing seemed very rational. The idea of straight lines seemed to be uh, considered, uh, you know, a Western bourgeois concept. But it was dynamic, and the people there were dynamic. And uh, it was, I guess there were 10, 15 people when I was there. They were all smart as hell, and they, they were devoted, and they all, most of them went on and actually learned a lot. One thing Geisha Wangeld produced was the most amazing scholars. I came after Jeffrey Hopkins, Bob Thurman, and, and others. But, um, you know, this is what I think His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, had such respect for Geisha Wangeld. He, he wasn't trying to produce, it, it wasn't a factory. It wasn't a Chinese labor camp to produce uh, Mao worshippers or the cult personalities. He, he was there to turn out individualized, individualistic scholars uh, who had their own minds and their own sense of things. And they've gone on to be really the backbone of scholastic Tibetan Buddhism. You always can judge a teacher by the product and uh, by that. Even though he was dynamic and, and in a way he drove people off that were overly attracted. I mean, he was so dynamic and, and he was, you know, I've been around charisma all my life. I've been in politics, right? But he's one of the most charismatic people I've ever met. But he wouldn't let you glom onto that. You know, he, he'd kind of show it to you a little bit. But then he wanted to see how you're doing in those studies. And he got you off into the university and uh, he got you out or he got you down to Washington like myself. He got you into a useful lifestyle. So it was a it was hardcore and hardcore in a wonderful sense, uh, and and that's his. Don't you think, David? That's oh, his real absolutely. legacy. Well, in must have been 1981, preparing for His Holiness's second visit, and there were a bunch of us up there. We'd work during the day and then you know do what we had to do. I was studying for the bar exam in the morning and then cutting trees and moving piles of dirt in the afternoon. And every night we had a ritual where we'd go in and everybody would say, a Tibetan prayer written by another lama for Gishala's long life, and some could repeat it in English, and we'd, and he would just spend a few minutes talking and asking things. And one woman who was there to help us prepare, but not a regular, she said something like, oh, you're such a bodhisattva. And Gishala turned on her, like, faster than you can imagine. He was like, don't you ever say that. You know, don't you ever say that. He said, correctly, you should say, I am friends with bodhisattvas. Basically, don't play me, you know. Like, that's the adoration and none of that. You know, like Joel said, 
He wanted to see the proof at the end of the day. He didn't care what the excuse was or anything like that. So, so that was a pretty good lesson to me about, you know, don't believe the hype, you know. And I think a lot of that would help with a lot of, you know, American students, especially when they're trying to deal with the cultural reality of a Buddhist society because there's so much valuable stuff there. But, you know, you don't have to get into the personalities, you know. The message is transcends whatever the messenger is. And His Holiness says that all the time, too. You know, he's, he's just transmitting a tradition, a legacy that stretches back more than 2,500 years and passes through some great uh, intellectual institutions, and this is a human kind of legacy. And, and Geshe-la never lost sight of that fact to replace himself in that. He but wasn't he, trying to create a false paradise. Right. And, it, and what was wonderful about him, I found, was he he made real the notion of what is the object of negation. And as you know from your own studies, I'm sure that uh, one of the first things that you begin to work on in the Lam Rim or is, is to understand what it is that's being rejected, not and so that you either don't over-reject it or you don't reify things. But... Uh, a lot of us just look at that intellectually rather than emotionally. Geshe <laughs> had the basic ability to kind of reach on into your psyche and pull out that thing, you know, I am, you know, I, how can you say that about me? You know, I'm wonderful. Or I'm, Did and, chess and help with this? Chess helped, and, and also uh, the Chinese labor camp helped a little bit, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, the, the, the food, <laughs> you know. And, but uh, it was a renaissance. It was an amazing, amazing scene. But it wasn't flowery. It was a combination of a marine boot camp uh, with uh, having dinner with Wittgenstein at night. I mean, some some place in between. Well, you know, it's it's at seven years old. It's hard to do the Wittgenstein stuff, you know. But but he would enforce with me if I was screwing around not doing stuff. He would he would enforce what I call the lightning tringa effect, and he would just if I'd be horsing around, he would take his malas and just quickly like snap and it'd be always across my you know and, and I've been beaten you know by my adult you know caretakers and stuff so and, and it wasn't a culturally embarrassing thing at the time everybody you know if you were a kid you got you know beat if you screwed up you know and but he never it wasn't ever that sustained kind of thing he just kind of woke you up you know like flash of the, the tringa so but the Chinese labor camp thing, I, I got to admit, that was a given with me. You know, I mean, it never was like uh, walking into something you weren't expecting. You, you, because that's that's how the existence was at the time. But, but his kind of approach to discipline at that to keep your focus, to me, was enlightening as well as you know, limited kind of personal uh, pain, <laughs> which I liked. I mean, that part was great. But I think I think also that at, at seven years old, I wasn't able to appreciate some of the things that that he was trying. Like one one thing that when I, whenever I got angry or something, because I was I was also after the summer of '52, we had an older uh, comic boy come and study for a while, and and he was like to tease me, and and I was susceptible to being teased, and it would always end up with me being out of Temper-wise, and I, and Gisela would come over once, and I'd go, "Leave me alone! Leave me alone!" You know, and he'd say, "Okay, but where are you? Who are you? You know, and you know, and you're a kid. You're like, 
here I'm over here, you know, be a Chester. You know, he said, Oh, that's just uh, meat and bones, you know, just uh, like what where's the real Dawa? You know, that was my comic memory. Where's the real Dawa? You know? And I always thought this was like a trick question, you know, like maybe somewhere you're not like the sole of your foot or something like that. And and I didn't realize what, what you know, the 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 ontological implications of that, or the, the trying to the worldview is coming from, and and I didn't actually, I, I didn't totally appreciate, I didn't get into Tibetan Buddhism until 1981 when I read Jeffrey Hopkins and Kenzer Nawal Lecton's Compassion in Tibetan Buddhism, and then it was like a something, a switch went off, you know, like, oh, this is what my teacher was about, so. So I came to it very late. You know, he had very strong political insight, I thought. And I, when I think back over those long nights of chess and when we got talking about politics, he actually was quite prescient. He, he felt that the Russians we could handle. Um, he wasn't any fan of the Russians by any means, but he felt that they were not so tricky. But he always used to say to me that uh, poor Americans, he'd say, when when China begins to emerge, he said, it's going to be very difficult, he said, because they are so tricky, so much more intricate and uh, so much uh, more subtle that we would have a very difficult time. And uh, he thought that China would emerge. And uh, he he was always very worried about the base for the Tibetans in India because he felt that eventually the... Chinese would find a way to maybe isolate uh, the Dalai Lama in India, or that India itself would would have questions about him. I think he worried a little too about, uh, he worried a lot about Vietnam. He never really said he was for one side or the other, and we talked a lot about it at times. He kind of, I'd push him on it, you know, push my pawns into him and try to get him to say something about it, but he wouldn't. But uh, he worried about our... Uh, fortitude, and he said, because we were so naive, uh, he said, you know, Americans don't know anything about history, which, of course, turned out to be true. I mean, the people that we were, especially at that time period, uh, there was or very... the region. Were the region, right? And very few people knew about what had happened to the Kalmyks or what had occurred. And, and of course, many of the people that first came to Buddhism came either from a sort of social democratic side in New York or, or uh, a leftist point of view, and um, he talked about that, you know. He said, you know, he once said, you know, he said, oh, I'm surrounded by all these, you know, people who have very strange views. And I said, well, what do you think of that? And he said, I, well, I don't like to talk about it. You know, I don't. He said, they'll change. He said, they'll change when they understand a little bit. Poor, naive, he'd say, very naive. And uh, one of the things that changed me was he got me to, because uh, I was obviously generationally very uh, opposed to what had happened in Vietnam and even though he'd get me to go down and see people in Washington, you know, uh, I was very leery of that world at that time period. And, um, but, you know, during that time period, I also got to see another perspective through him. And of course, then I began to change my views a little bit and, and uh, understood a little more what he was saying. But he, he was nobody's fool. He, you know, he knew who Churchill was. He understood the politics of England. You know, he'd been there. He understood the Indian liberation movement. I mean, he, he, he knew his Tibetan Buddhism, but he knew his contemporary history very well. 
He loved to talk about it. He loved Walter Cronkite. You know, he, <laughs> right? he, he, and the Gong Show. And the Gong Show, <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, you know, tell him what he said once about the woman on the television. He had this thing for variety shows, like Ed Sullivan, and then when this Lawrence act Will. comes up, or something, <laughs> right? And they're, you know, and they're basically scantily clad and singing and dance. And he said, "What? Why?" Why just take it off? Take everything <laughs> off. It's like your grandfather saying, you know, yeah, take it off, <laughs> you know, or something. But I, but I understood what he meant. There's some kind of pretension going on, you know. If you're gonna sing the song, fine. You know, if you're gonna be, you know, like soft porn, then you know, like get to it or something, you know. But he liked Lawrence. Well, he he would love. He was a sucker for those, the Gong Show and any kind of variety show. And he loved wrestling, professional just, wrestling. Yeah, right on yeah. TV. You know, I mean, he would just he'd just get worked up because back then it's not like now. You don't know who the good guy is or the bad guy because my kids grew up watching it. But back then it was clearly marked who the bad guy, and he'd be up there for the good guys whenever they put a beating on a bad guy. When I mean, he, you could just see him just get physically into it. And I try to tell him, like, this is really not true, you know. Uh, he wouldn't buy it, you know, because you couldn't get bounced off the floor like that. So, so yeah, there was this other side to him, you know, that was very down to earth, you know. Well, most of it was down to earth. Springs up how this story, while while it's about the the, the coming of Tibetan Buddhism to America, it, it's also a nice little slice of Americana. It's absolutely. This is the American story. I mean, this is quintessentially. You know, you know, you have these three guys, these Americans, right? Basically, from the Pilgrims' time, right? Who could trace their ancestry right to the start of America. Basically, Bob Thurman made, and yeah, Jeffrey Bob Hopkins. Thurman, J- Chris George, and Jeffrey Hopkins, and to to be able to study here, right, with the newest immigrants, the newest settlers, right, that's kind of a historical synapse, or something. in New Jersey, and in New yeah, Jersey, in which New is Jersey. at least funny the New Yorkers, <laughs> right, right, you know, I mean, it it all had to be New Jersey, right? <laughs> so, but you know, I'm fascinated. I could never talk politics with him. But it, it's amazing that he would give that kind of encouragement to Joel, you know, like all, half a generation later. So that brings out the other side. The chess player. Yeah. And th- that he would pick you to refer you to contacts and things like that. That's Well, he wasn't perfect. He made mistakes. Well, of course, you know. I mean, you know <laughs> hey, I've had to fix some of the architecturally that you t- talk about. But, you know, and and of course, I think he... Some people certainly disappointed him, but, you know, he was amazingly resilient. One of the best pictures I remember is he's 74 years old, and he's on a ladder doing the siding on the, on one of the main buildings, you know, and, and people are handing stuff up to him. So, yeah, he was pretty hands-on, but he wasn't arbitrary either, but other than the, the, the aluminum siding on the ceiling. I mean, that was... That was a stroke, I must say. You have to realize that he came <clears throat> from a pastoral society, came from the steppes, and look at how this man adapted. I mean, he he became a student of Dorjeev's, who was such a powerhouse at that time period, particularly out of Leningrad. Uh, he got selected to leave one of the last trains that left Leningrad before the purges to, you know, get to uh, Mongolia and then go down to Tibet. He had just, he lived in Drebong and he lived in Lhasa. And then he met uh, Sir Charles Bell 
from British intelligence and made friends with him. And then he went up and lived in Beijing and he adapted there. And then he came back down. I mean, here's a man who was the ultimate adapter and ended up watching Lawrence Welk in, in New Jersey <laughs> and uh, hobnobbing with, uh, you know, with the powers to be. I'll never forget the day he came down here and I was in the White House and he wanted to go see the White House. I was there. Yeah, I know you we were. were and so we went over to see the West Wing of the White House and uh, he ran into uh, uh, Mrs. Carter, the mother, and they got along famously. But he was like he was floating on a cloud as he uh, went around the White House. And you could tell he understood. Uh, he was grounded in it. He understood its meaning and he understood the implications of him being there. And uh, I remember when we left, he grabbed my hand and when we went out front, to remember that, and we went out front of the, uh, uh, the West Wing and we came out the gate and he looked up at the White House and he grabbed my hand and uh, he said, this is really very important. This, this place is really very important. And uh, you could just feel the enormity of what he was realizing, all within the Dharma. And I think that's what I would like to close with. Here's a man who lived all this, all these transitions, uh, but his faith in the Dharma, not as some blind faith, but as some process that he went through, through his liberation, which you could feel, a liberated, individualized human being, a powerful individual who, who digested uh, this Dharma that he had. A dharma that wasn't for sissies, you know. It was a dharma that was for for powerhouses, and uh, he lived it, and uh, and he and he adapted it, and he believed in it, and he most importantly, outside of any tradition, right? You know, he he didn't become encompassed by the Kalmuk community. He became as a gift. He didn't become encompassed by any even any other tradition. He came and he gave it. He gave it in its full power and and his interpretation of it. And that is the real electrical current that came through the Kalmuk power lines. Yeah, it's a conduit. There's no question. As, as Joe was saying, he wasn't encompassed by the Kalmuk, although he had a special regard for them. Not only that, he was able to influence them in a positive way, to get out of this tribal, jingoistic mentality. Because he, you know, be, before Bob and Jeffrey and, and Chris George showed up, he had lots of Americans come through, and he would give them, you know, like they'd come once a week or once a month and either give lessons or he'd meet with them privately and talk about Buddhism. And, and, and one of the first was the artist Ted Seth Jacobs, who's quite well known now, and he, they met through the Zen Center, but he was always attracting these people from the outside. And for which his detractors always said, oh, look, you know, he's giving away the secret or some, you know, the petty mind. And that never affected him. He, you know, it was his own place. You know, they weren't paying his bills. And he had all of these very unusual people, like I said before, and George Zornos and his partner who published Theodore Art's book. He, they were very helpful in the early years, bringing the lamas from Tibet uh, Mr. Kimball, who was a mortician, basically, a, a funeral parlor director from Princeton, he'd come. And, and the presence of these outsiders inside of Freewood Acres made Freewood Acres less insular and closed, I think. Because, you know, you got to remember who's there. Everybody that lied about how they got into America, you know, including the Russians, the Russians even more so. 
So in, in if you stop and examine the hearings and things that went on. So this this insular community, and, and that's an apt metaphor, Gisela comes through there and just opens things up. And what are you worried about? You know, you know we're all going to die Well, in a, in a way, he wanted them to be Mongolians. Otherwise, he didn't want them to be insular. And Geshe-la was, in essence, a Mongol. And you're seeing it today in modern Mongolia as they're, after this huge holocaust that occurred there where the Russians tried to completely crush Buddhism. It's beginning to flourish. And you see the power of the... Uh, they were great Mongol scholars in the past, great Mongol Buddhist leaders... And I think it's going to happen again. Uh-huh. And uh, it, it, to a certain extent, uh, given the repression that's going on in Tibet, uh, which I don't think will be successful, I don't think you'll ever crush the Dharma in, in Tibet, no matter what they do, unless they were to exterminate all Tibetans. But I think that in Mongolia, there's going to be a huge renaissance. And uh, there is a renaissance going on. And it is that spirit uh, of the Mongols, and uh, I, I think it's going to have a big impact in China. And, you know, people who think that this is over, it, it, there's been a, uh, a setback, but I think that it's going to be a very powerful tradition that's going to go forward, and geshe really encompassed that, and really, he was a Mongol to heart. And the way I look at it, and also what I'd like to express, is that the, the Mongol Empire, as great as it was, was really the penultimate accomplishment. Because what happened eventually, that most martial of societies, that most militaristic of cultures, became, in effect, followers of the path of wisdom and compassion. It just did a, a total reverse in several... I mean, it's not complete, and I don't know if it was ever complete, but to change the fiber, the timber of, the, of that culture that produced the greatest fighting machine of their time into the pacifist followers of the Dalai Lama, say, you know, at least from the 16th century on. This is also a, a quite a, a sociological accomplishment. You know? Speaking of the Dalai Lama, Geshe Wangyal found it very important to bring the Dalai Lama to the United States, where and many might not know this, he wasn't welcome. Um, why, why did Geshe La find it so important to bring the Dalai Lama to America? Well, I think he understood the power of the Dalai Lama and the sense of the power of his personality. I think he found it very contradictory that America wouldn't have the Dalai Lama here, and he saw the fact that there were people who uh, fought his coming as being a great uh, travesty in many ways. From the time I got there in 1971 until we finally got His Holiness in in 79, it was his drumbeat of trying to get His Holiness here. And uh, you know, people often say, well, who's responsible for bringing the Dalai Lama to America? And uh, When you really think about it, a lot of people, uh, a lot of people were very involved in it and nobody more involved than uh, Geshe-la because uh, it was just such a, he was convinced it could happen and he and he drove to have it happen and as soon as it did happen as david has articulated in his article it had a dynamic impact and no place did have a more dynamic impact than on the hill where important congressional leaders from the right and the left spectrum from teddy kennedy to jesse helms charlie rose uh, to uh, ben gilman uh, many people that no one's heard of today but they really stepped out and uh, and worked. Nancy Pelosi is uh, is another one. So it was a very it was very important. 
and I had no idea that it was so important when we all worked to to get it done. And I have to say also, uh, it wouldn't have happened except in, in the Carter administration. Uh, Carter uh, was so uh, much for human rights, he wasn't necessarily, he had, wasn't, hadn't thought it through in terms of the Dalai Lama, but once it was posed to the administration, how can you be for human rights and not let the Dalai Lama in? It was completely logical. Many of the people who went on to become his great friends actually weren't very helpful at that time period. Uh, it's just like many presidents who aren't, uh, when they're in office, they tend to be a little less helpful than when they're out of office. But it was a big step. And I think David's article from Russia with Love, I love that title, is that it just shows you in human affairs how to work on something that seems so small, to move the pebble uh, can have such a big impact and how these poor people that went through so much, David's relatives, and they did go through so much suffering to get here, and how they came you know, with the Dharma and an American flag, and how they stayed true to that, and how you know, they bought Geisha Law. And it, these were all the cause and effect relationships that created the situation where the Dalai Lama today is really one of the most known political leaders in the world, and I would imagine a hell of a lot more popular than Mao Zedong in the world. <laughs> which is the supreme irony. What Joel just said is absolutely true in terms of everybody helping and coming together. And But if you take just the the reception he received on the Hill, I think Joel has to admit that that was by the legwork of the people who first even entertained the idea, like people like Charlie Rose, mm-hmm. who who really, I mean, here comes this tobacco congressman, right? He was from a farm area in North Carolina, becoming the champion of his holiness up on the hill. And this was not a time when he got all the limousines and the Secret Service or none of that. This was all done by legwork. And I think that kind of initial reception where everybody saw who they were dealing with, the rest, of course, his holiness took care of. But the legwork for that and the, and the contacts for that and, and you know, the currency of the hill, right, the, who you know, and, and, and that was all laid by Joel also because, and as we all know, and then anybody that was there at the time knew that, that Joel and, and Congressman Rose, who shared the stage, at the at DAR Constitution Hall when His Holiness made, made his first speech in, in Washington, I think people should not lose sight of that, not for any accolades or recognition beyond the personal satisfaction, but, you know, it's it's important to understand how things came about. And, and the Hill, it's still just a, a, a coup d'etat, in terms of his holding the way he conquered it, and the, and the groundwork was laid And by. it's important for the future. I mean, at this time period where China, the Chinese Communist Party, I should not say China, yeah. seems so strong, and uh, you have the British Cameron saying, oh, don't worry, you know, we're not going to meet the Dalai Lama here, just give us your uh, currency. There are a lot of people who get negative about things and about the future of Tibet, but uh, I don't think there's any reason to be negative about it. And I think this great spirit that's a human spirit and transcends all religions, it, this is just a one example of what can be done and the need for everybody to to combine politics and religion. You know, obviously, church and state need to be separated. I believe that very firmly. But you can't be political without having ethics. 
and views and, and, and supporting this country, supporting religious freedom or non-religious freedom, right? And uh, that's, that's what we're about, about the freedom of ideas, the freedom to worship, freedom to not worship. And um, if we lose that, I wonder what we're about. And so I think for people to be political, whether it's protecting a Muslim community in Michigan that wants to worship or a Sikh community or a Buddhist community or a Christian fundamentalist community or a Catholic uh, liberation movement or a, uh, Opus Dei, you know, all these ideas or atheists is very important. One reason I respect his holiness so much is that you know he is very much of that school. The important thing is to be alive and to be thinking, but to to wall off politics from religion in the sense that you think it's something unbecoming. And at the beginning of the Buddhist movement, there was a lot of that because there was this fear that there had been this association of the Tibetans with uh, with the agency, with the CIA, and that uh, and with right wing elements in the United States government. There are a lot of people who ran. A lot of the early religious people in Tibetan Buddhism really tried to say, oh, we're not part of that, you know, or we don't support that, or, you know, that kind of thing. And that's a big mistake. I think that's a the big mistake. I think, it, And I think uh, Geishala thought that was a huge mistake. I, thought he thought, yeah, I think he thought that was extremely naive, especially in Mahayana Buddhism, where you know, you're not just working for your own liberation, where the idea is that we're all, if we're going to, one person is going to get liberated, we'll all get liberated together, the great Mahayana, the great vehicle. So how can you separate politics and religion if you believe that? And I don't think there's a better example than this story told about this little community in New Jersey and these people who came. All they had left was their faith. That's all they had. And, uh, and it led to great things, and we were enriched by it, which again shows why immigration handled correctly, you know, is such a gift. I, I, the one thing I would add is that it's important to look forward, not just backwards. Yeah. And this story is going to become very important, not just because of old history. It's going to be very important to retell this story and the history of what happened in St. Petersburg uh, before the Russian Revolution and during the Russian Revolution and what happened in Mongolia, because there's going to be a renaissance, of, there is a renaissance of Buddhism in Mongolia, and there is a renaissance of Buddhism in white Russia, not just in Mongolian Russia. And, uh, you know, it's not hard to find pictures even of Putin and Medvedev with with monks, uh, not that I think that they're necessarily endorsing all that as, a, <laughs> uh, you know, their, their political side, but still they're not afraid of it. And it's very important to go back and read two, I think, two interesting books there, one is quite academically good, and the other one is not so academically good, but in a way is very important. And one is uh, Snelling's book on um, Russian Buddhism, which is really uh, has a lot about Dorjev, who's a very important historical figure. You can't understand Central Asian politics in the late 19th century and early 20th century if you don't understand Dorjev. And the second book is a, an interesting book that's come out called The Red Shambhala by a Russian author. Snomensky. And, and he gets into this whole dynamic that was occurring at the beginning of the revolution all the way until the uh, purges of the 30s, how there were people in the Communist Party who felt that Buddha was the first communist and that uh, they actually had tankas painted early on the revolution of Lenin as Buddha. And uh, there's a wonderful picture in his book of uh, one of these tankas in a Mongolian uh, yurt or gur. So 
the Shamba legend we know was used during the time of Dorjiev around the, the Russian emperor. And this is what drove the English completely crazy was this notion of that Dorjiev came up with of an inner Asian Buddhist nation. Uh, they, they saw this as very challenging was one reason they in, in, invaded. But then also, after the revolution, there was this whole notion that Buddhism, to a certain extent, was a pre- precursor of nativist communism. And Stalin, who was very nationalistic, very uh, uh, limited in his thinking, of course, cut all that out and had everybody shot, you know, including former heads of the president or of the KGB, who was into this, this thinking. So, you know, this is a whole part of history that has been swept under the rug and will reemerge as our view of Buddhism becomes less primitive. We, we right now are because of the great holocaust that occurred, you have to remember, 1945, Buddhism was the largest religion in the world. Millions and millions of monks and nuns and lay people were uh, were executed, liquidated, uh, whether it be in North Korea or in China or from Manchuria or Mongolia or Tibet or Laos or Cambodia or Vietnam, all these areas in Russia. Uh, we we haven't even begun to categorize what what occurred yet. We, you know we're focused today on what's happened in Tibet, which is you know horrific. But we have to understand that this is this is the tail end of a systematic uh, Holocaust that occurred uh, of of the Buddha Dharma, and so this article just is a a doorway into a whole history that we don't understand, and as our understanding of the Dharma increases. Uh, we we will we will go through this doorway and, and understand much more. These are concepts that we we need to understand as we develop a more sophisticated view of Buddhism. Buddhism is not a historical; it's a historical religion as well as a historical. And we need to understand these things. And as we understand them, our compassion and our our wisdom will will increase. And that's what Mr. David's done is to help us down that pathway. <laughs> yeah, this story demonstrates how, how politics and the Dharma can't be walled off and separated. Uh, absolutely. Like I said, the, the Cold War plays a light motif throughout the whole thing. If it hadn't been for the Cold War, which couldn't have happened without World War II or the emergence of these two opposing light and dark forces. I mean, you know, so so this is going on the whole time. And... And, uh, yeah, it is political situation. It just happened to serve, uh, at least for the comics, it allowed them to reestablish their, their uh, spiritual roots or their traditions in a whole new uh, seedbed. You, know? and you just saw this advanced issue in print for the first time uh, an hour or two ago. What's it like seeing it in print? This has been a story I've been trying to write for a while, and there were a couple of false starts, you know, because I'm not a historian. I'm not even a diarist. But all of these connections kept happening and keeping reminding me of, hey, that something good came of this experience. You're in a, a Cossack and Mongol community in New Jersey, you know, producing this kind of result was, was, I thought, something that was worthwhile. And having lived in, I felt like telling the story because it was a unique upbringing, even for that age. So the, the memoir that I'm writing is basically about the experience of growing up 
in that community and seeing Gisela and then eventually how that led to His Holiness coming to, to America. And, and, you know, the rest is history. You know, that, that debut in 79 uh, really did change the arc of, of uh, interest in Tibetan Buddhism because when that visit happened, you have to remember, there was already a layer of intellectual and scholarly work done on Tibetan Buddhism. And once His Holiness came and gave that incredible teaching tour, all of those things were, were, were firmed up, I think, and more and more interest grew. So that's how it came about. And I'm just thrilled to death that, you know, at least I can contribute just a small piece of the narrative. That's all the news is fit to print. It's <laughs> <laughs> a wrap. Thank you, John David, for your thank time you. Today. Well, thank you, Ramson, and thank all your your colleagues there that made this thing possible. It's wonderful. <laughs>